Today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 21. We're starting in verse 17 and we'll go through verse 36. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or uh, or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why would Paul go to Jerusalem? He had been warned several times not to visit Jerusalem. He had been warned that if he did go to visit Jerusalem, things would not go well for him. Why did he not listen? Now, we're arriving in the middle of chapter 21. We've skipped a brief travel narrative uh, to arrive here. One of the important things, though, that happens in the midst of that travel narrative are the very warnings that Paul receives not to go to Jerusalem. So, if you were to go back to verse 11 in chapter 21... The, uh, the disciples entire say, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. It's verse 4 of uh, chapter 21, where the disciples entire warn Paul in the Spirit that it will be bad for him if he goes to Jerusalem. Then, in 21.8, you have Paul and 
following through verse 11, you have Paul passing through Caesarea. And in Caesarea, a prophet shows up named Agabus, and he comes up to Paul, and he takes Paul's belt off him, and he binds his own feet in his hands. And he says in uh, verse uh, 11, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Well, at that point, all of the disciples at Caesarea urge Paul, including Luke, not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul says, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so finally in verse 14, they say, let the will of the Lord be done. The prophets warned Paul not to proceed to Jerusalem. The disciples warned him not to go forward. Should we say that Paul was reckless? No, we've already gotten a hint of why Paul would be willing to do what he is called to do or what he is compelled to do. And that came in chapter 20, verse 24. We considered it last week when Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Frankly, I think Paul's words are somewhat haunting. Haunting in the sense that Paul seems to have authentically come to the decision that he, his life had no value, no real meaning, no ultimate purpose apart from fulfilling the call that God had placed upon his life. And to the degree that he can fulfill that call in his life, his life has meaning and purpose. And so even despite all the warnings about going to Jerusalem, Paul says, this is the course that has been laid out for me, and he proceeds to, uh, to Jerusalem. The correlations in our passage between the life of Paul and the life of Jesus are pretty interesting. It only almost makes Jerusalem something of a metaphor. Right? Jesus right, knows what lies ahead of him in Jerusalem, and yet he proceeds there seeking to be, bring blessing, but will be put to death. Right? He must pass through Jerusalem, and on the other side of Jerusalem for Jesus lies resurrection. In the same manner, Paul right, knows what lies before him in Jerusalem, and yet still out of faithfulness, he proceeds in that direction. And only on the other side of Jerusalem will Paul actually go to Rome, which will fulfill the call upon his life. Jerusalem is, a, is a, an image, a metaphor for the good that God brings about through the suffering that accompanies faithfulness, both for Jesus and for Paul. And one way to reflect upon this passage uh, for us today is to ask the question, to what Jerusalem are you called? Where are you called to suffer for righteousness, and only in faith do you believe that on the other side of that suffering is their resurrection, and is their fulfillment of your call? I think it's really without question that for every believer, every person called to follow Jesus, to die to self and to pick up one's cross, unquestionably every believer is called to participate in the mission of God in the revelation of his glory, the redemption of this world as he wields it. To participate that, in that inevitably will require some degree of suffering. Are you willing to walk through your Jerusalem right, and be faithful to God or do you find yourself in a place where you are more tempted to run in the opposite direction? To pull a Jonah, we might say and move away from your calling rather than through the suffering that you even may know awaits. 
unless we pass this off too quickly, put yourself in the place of Paul. Right? You know what's coming. Imagine, imagine a, a prophet, so to speak, walked up to you and said, you know, you're going to go to India next year. When you go to India, you're going to get malaria. And as a result of your malaria, you'll be sick on and off for the rest of your life. Would you go? Or if a prophet came and said, you're going to go to Haiti next year. But in Haiti, there are going to be political uprisings and you're going to be beaten within an inch of your life. Knowing that, ahead of time, would you go? A prophet says, you know, you've been thinking about sharing the gospel with your neighbor. You're actually going to finally work up the courage to do that next month. It will be amazing. But after that, your neighbor right, is going to be so angry at you and feel so judged by you that that neighbor is going to slander you in the entire neighborhood. And your reputation will be compromised and you'll lose several friends in your community. Would you still share? Or if you're thinking about being generous, you get a huge bonus and you think, I can do such good work. And the prophet comes and says, that's great, do that. But understand that the month after you give, you're going to lose your job. And your family's going to be destitute for two years. Food stamp destitute. Are you still going to give away that money? Or suddenly there's a temptation, maybe I should tuck it away. Right? All of us would think twice if we actually knew what was coming with our decision for faithfulness. Which makes Paul so remarkable because he knows exactly what's coming. And he still decides to move forward to Jerusalem. I'm going to be faithful to the call. In fact, Paul seems to be more concerned with the question of what it looks like to be faithful rather than what it looks like to be safe. Now, the only reason Paul could draw that conclusion is if he's come to the place where he really believes that it is more important to be faithful to Jesus and his call than it is to pursue anything else in this life, even the value, of what he might, the value that he might place upon his own life. And that's a... That's a risky and a dangerous way to live. It is a way to live that most of us spend a lot of time trying to avoid. I think we might say to ourselves that, that that's dangerous to always follow that call with such uh, lack of reservation. But I do wonder if Paul wouldn't say, you know what, it's more dangerous knowing your call and having received the unmerited grace of God to run in the other direction. What really is at stake and what really is to be gained I've been reading with some interest a, uh, a semi-recent book by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, who is a professor at Syracuse University, uh, tenured and has long been the, one of the department chairs over the graduate school, uh, so pretty, pretty accomplished. Her book is entitled The Secret Thought of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. Rosaria, uh, through the 90s, made her career by being a professor of uh, LGBTQ studies, transgender hermeneutics, feminine readings of different texts. This was her, her field of study and her field of expertise. And it came about one year in the mid to late 90s that she was just as part of her job. She wrote an op-ed piece for the local newspaper advocating some of her views, and that went, of course, out to the community. And she received a lot of mail as a result of the op-ed piece that she had written. Some of it was very hateful and uh, wished and planned her death. Some of it was fan mail. They celebrated uh, what her agenda was and what she was trying to communicate. But she received one letter that stood apart from pretty much every other letter, and it uh, troubled her greatly because it was, uh, it was challenging her to question uh, the presuppositions that she was operating with. 
that she assumed that uh, she had the right reading of everything and um, knew what she was, had, all the conclusions were based on certain fundamental commitments, and those commitments were brought into, the, this, brought into question by this local pastor who had written to her. And the letter was both thoughtful and loving, um, wasn't, wasn't over the top, and so it, it struck her as something that was unique and entirely different. And it sat on her desk, and she wanted to put it away, but couldn't. It just sat there, and basically Jesus was starting to tap her shoulder. Right? and calling uh, her unto himself. What happened was she finally reached out to pastor, Pastor Ken Smith in Syracuse, and that began a dialogue, and that dialogue became a friendship between her and Ken and his wife. And then she started visiting the church to see what this Christianity thing was about and ultimately converted to Christianity. Now, there are a couple of neat moments in the story, and one, I think, is just uh, that Pastor Ken reached out. In the sense that if you were reading in the local newspaper an op-ed piece by someone who had views that were very different from your own and someone you pretty much probably wrote off as somebody so distant from the faith you couldn't interact with, that would be an easy thing to do. But that's not what Pastor Ken did. And think about the risk. Right? Rosaria could have written back, she could have taken that letter and written another op-ed piece and publicly flayed him in the community. Or his letter could have been, uh, you know, a piece of comic relief in her classroom, depending on how she might treat it. But Pastor Ken wasn't worried about those things. She read, he read her piece, said, this is worth taking up, and I'm going to challenge you in some ways. And as a result of that, Rosaria eventually uh, converted, became a Christian, had to rethink a lot of very significant aspects of her life uh, in a very real way. To the extent that uh, in 1999, she was over the entire graduate school, as I said, of the University of Syracuse, and she was giving the incoming address. And she uh, wrestled with what to speak, what to say to all these incoming students to the point that she was nauseous over what she felt compelled to say as a result of the call of Jesus upon her life. But eventually, uh, she, she wrote this as part of her welcoming address. Uh, This brought me to the awesome realization that our living God is in all of our life and that my success as a professor was his blessing on me, not my deserved and earned accolade. I discovered through what the Bible calls the renewing of our minds that what I had previously claimed as mine wasn't even about me. And she would conclude, real learning, no matter how polished the moves or rehearsed the rhetoric, is empty learning unless we who profess are anchored in something bigger than we are. Choose with discernment, and don't let the proclivities of the here and now choose for you. Right? Now that is a scandalous thing for a professor at a secular university in her position and in her field to say to any group of students. Right? What did she say? She said, listen, if you don't start to, uh, to believe or at least to ask the question that there's something bigger and beyond you, then you're not doing any real learning. You're simply signing up to learn what's popular now, the proclivities of the here and now. But that doesn't mean that it's truth. And she challenged those incoming students to choose with discernment, which (laughs) don't necessarily believe your professors. There are bigger questions to be asked. She said after that address, she she essentially wrote herself a pink slip uh, giving that that address, which uh, actually did not ultimately come about. But you can imagine the ramifications for Rosaria in her respective communities. You know, Rosaria is actually a story where she looked at her Jerusalem 
And she essentially knew what was coming. She knew what the cost would be for speaking with some degree of truth and love in the midst of those settings. And there were ramifications, but there's also, it's a very beautiful read. And there are very beautiful aspects of resurrection and a call fulfilled on the other side of her willingness to walk through that Jerusalem moment. And Rosary reminds us of Paul. Indeed, Paul was willing to walk through his Jerusalem uh, moment. It doesn't look like a Jerusalem moment when he arrives, though, does it? Right? When he gets there initially, it's all celebration. James gathers all the elders. Paul's been gone for a significant period of time. We, we're talking years. And they all sit down, and Paul says, listen, this is what's been going on through my ministry among the Gentiles. And James says, that's amazing. And uh, James says, this is what's been happening through our ministry as thousands more have converted to Christianity in Jerusalem. And Paul says, that's amazing. And you think, well, this is going to be a really fun gathering and celebration. But immediately from there, James says, uh, we've got a problem, by the way, that needs to be addressed. And this problem is a bit complicated and will, uh, will require us to handle it with some degree uh, of attention, some degree of deafness, and to also be willing to say, we may have to chew on this a while to actually understand what's going on because it's not entirely clear. The problem is this. If you notice what James says in verse 20, uh, many Jews have come to worship Jesus as Messiah, but they're also very zealous for the law. In fact, the picture we're getting in, in Acts 21 of um, the Christianity that is occurring within Jerusalem is a, a Jewish Christianity that remains very committed to the liturgical aspects of the law. Right? These are Jewish Christians that we're talking about within our passage, and James's concern is that there's a rumor running amongst them that James has encouraged, or that sorry, that Paul has encouraged people uh, to leave their Judaism behind. As Jews convert to worship Jesus as Messiah, the rumor is uh, that you can see there that Paul has taught them to forsake Moses, not to circumcise their children, and to forsake their ways in general. What's going? What's going on? Now, we need to be clear on one point. Paul, at length, has argued that Gentiles do not need to become Jews to worship Jesus. If you are a Gentile living in the Mediterranean world and choose to worship Jesus as God incarnate, that's great. You don't have to start engaging circumcision and dietary laws and uh, various rituals in order to worship Jesus. But that being said, nowhere in the entire New Testament does Paul tell a Jewish convert that he must abandon his Judaism. Okay, do you see the difference? Paul argues at length that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish, but nowhere does he make the argument that Jews have to give up their Jewishness in order to worship Jesus. Now, does that sound confusing? I hope so, because it is. All right? Understanding exactly what Paul is up to is, uh, is difficult and has caused theologians to scratch their heads and you will feel the weight of this more if you're in the Galatians class this summer. Because Paul says such strong things about the law when he's dealing with the churches in Galatia. And here he seems to be Mr. Law-abiding Jewish Christian. Right? So what do we, how do we make sense of this uh, situation? Well, first, let's consider what James encourages Paul to do. Right? James says, we have this problem. The rumors are circulating uh, they're saying you're telling people not to be Jewish anymore once they uh, turn to worship Jesus as Messiah. And so, listen, we've got four guys who are under a vow. 
They've taken a vow that probably lasted about 30 days. It was probably a Nazarite vow. At the end of the vow, they're going to go to the temple. They're going to shave their heads and make the appropriate sacrifices. You're going to pay for them. It was expensive, and it was, a, it was a sign of commitment. Not only that, but you're going to take a vow yourself, Paul, and do it in the temple so that everybody can see. And when everyone sees you taking a vow, and everyone sees you ending your vow with these other four men and paying for them, then who could question your Jewish commitment? Nobody's going to question you after that, which is famous last words because it doesn't go well. And I wonder sometimes if Paul wasn't a bit upset with James afterwards uh, because we chuckle a little bit because this sounds initially like such a good idea and it's going to go so badly. But do realize, in a serious note, uh, this, this is the la- you're, you're looking at the last passage in which Paul will be a free man for the rest of his life. So in part because of James's plan and in part because of a mistaken identity, uh, Paul will remain a prisoner uh, for the rest of his days. So pretty serious uh, consequences. And, but again, Paul knew what was coming or had a pretty good idea given the prophecies that had occurred. So you get the gist of what James is after in verse 25b. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. Now, Paul agrees. He takes a vow of purification. He moves to pay for the four men who are under another vow. Paul is playing, I'm very serious about the law. And again, this is difficult to understand because if you look at a place like Galatians, Paul has said, the law has served its purpose. The law has come to an end. No one does not receive life by the law. One is not justified by God Uh, before God by the law. And so why suddenly is Paul playing as if he's very serious about the law? Well, there are a few different takes, and we can, uh, three uh, effectively, and you can consider them, and I'll tell you what I think is going on. So number one, take number one, is that Paul's still figuring things out, right? It takes centuries to hammer out Christian doctrine. It didn't just happen overnight. And so Paul is saying, well, we've got Jesus and we've got the law and we've got to work out how, what this relationship is and it's complicated. And at different places, he seems to emphasize different things. That may be to some degree going on, right? We see development doctrinally, even within the New Testament, so that is possible. But Paul at times seems to be pretty sure of what he thinks. Option number two is that Paul actually thinks this is not a very good idea, but he's willing to be submissive to James, He considers James his elder in the church and says, okay, I'm going to play by James' rule. I'm on his turf. And uh, that may be part of it, but everything we know about Paul tells us that he was not a very submissive guy. And he certainly didn't hesitate to go head-to-head with Peter in Antioch over similar issues. So I don't think option two is very likely. Option three is that Paul, as he said in his letter to the Corinthians, is willing to be all things to all people. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share share with them in blessings, in its blessings. Really a pretty remarkable statement. 
Paul is saying to the Jew, I became like a Jew. I lived as, as if I was under the law so that we wouldn't argue about that, but we could be, get busy talking about the gospel. And when I'm with the Gentiles, I live as one outside the law because, again, that's not the real issue. The real issue is Jesus. And I wanted to win more so that we might celebrate the fruit of the gospel together. Paul demonstrates a phenomenal willingness to bend, to pivot, to, um, to take on different con- contextual priorities in order that they wouldn't be a stumbling stone to discussing the gospel itself. And perhaps it's a reminder to us or a challenge to us that are there ways in which we argue over minutiae or are so committed to our cultural context that we are unwilling to adapt to some extent? That Paul would write what he writes in Galatians and at the same time said, yes, I'll go to the temple and make sacrifices after the one true sacrifice. Right? There's a certain degree of willingness to lay his life down that the gospel might be preached and articulated by his very love for the people around him. And so it is a warning to us, perhaps, not that there's never judgment or lines to be drawn, but Paul's willingness to adapt for the sake of the gospel being shared is really quite remarkable. So, Paul is willing to bend in order to promote the gospel and to promote unity within the church. And more than anything else, I think this is what is going on. But as Paul makes this decision, what happens? Well, a week goes by, the time for the vows to be paid and the heads to be shaved and their hair would be burned as a result, right? That that time comes and they're gathered at the temple. And what happens is you already get the impression that a bunch of the Jewish Christians are pretty mad at Paul and there's a lot of rumors circulating about him. But they've also seen him in town with a Gentile convert named Trophimus, And what they do is they assume that he's brought Trophimus into the temple. Now, that may not seem like a very big deal to you. But if you were to bring, if a Jewish person was to bring a Gentile beyond the court of Gentiles, right? That's the outer, one of the outer courts in the temple. Then if you're Jewish, you can proceed into inner courts. If you were to bring a Gentile into an inner court that was reserved solely for Jews, that offense had two consequences. Number one, it was considered to defile the temple. The temple itself is defiled by the presence of a Gentile. How do you get rid of that defilement? You must kill the person who is responsible. So if you brought a Gentile into an inner court of the temple, you would be put to death without any trial. Because put yourself in the shoes of the other people for a moment. The temple itself is defiled until the situation is remedied. So in the coming chapters, when you see Jews say, we're, we're committing to not eat or drink until Paul is dead, this is why. They believe that the temple has been defiled until Paul will be put to death, which is why they're making such a strong commitment, or will make such a strong commitment in the chapters to come. But right now, this is why the crowd goes nuts, right? That you essentially have a riot, they start beating Paul and have every intention of killing him, and the Ro- Roman legion is sent in to bring peace to what's going on in the midst of the temple. But all of this is the result of James' plan gone awry and a charge of mistaken identity. Remember, Trophimus isn't really in the temple. They just assume that he is. And as a result of a charge of mistaken identity, Paul will spend the rest of his life in captivity. Makes you wonder about justice, doesn't it? God does not always dispense justice the ways in which we would like 
And as Paul moves through his Jerusalem, he will be a prisoner for the rest of his days. And yet, even in the midst of that, proceed from our perspective, that lack of justice, it will be the way that Paul gets to Rome and has a hearing in the imperial court to share the gospel. And from Luke's perspective, that will fulfill the great commission that the gospel has gone to the extents of the earth because it has gone to the capital of the Gentile world. So amazing things result as a result of this willingness to suffer even when done, done wrong. Now Luke makes a couple of interesting observations as this all goes down. Consider chapter 21, verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. This is the last mention of the temple in this historical narrative of Scripture. This entity that has played such a significant role. And of course, Luke is very strongly echoing the life of Jesus here in the life of Paul. As Jesus must go to Jerusalem to face his suffering, Paul must go to Jerusalem to face his suffering. As Jesus' faithfulness condemns the temple and the temple curtain is torn in two, Paul's faithfulness condemns the temple and the doors are shut permanently in the narrative of Scripture. Um, as Jesus will find resurrection on the other side of his faithfulness, Paul will find the fulfillment of his mission in a very similar fashion on the other side of, of his mission. And so we see that the temple is judged even as Paul has been faithful because they kicked out Christ's ambassador of the good news. Not only that, but if you also look at chapter 21, verse 36, as the Roman cohort is dragging Paul away, and proceeding to, um, what, what they will begin to proceed to uh, whip him, uh, the crowd shouts what? Away with him. Right? The same phrase that the crowd will shout uh, for Jesus as he's led away to his execution. Right? Again, this notion that in both cases, right, as Luke tells the story of Paul as a shadow of the true story of the risen Christ, with this notion that as passing through their suffering for doing good, God is working great things as a result, and that this is part of the journey of every follower of Jesus. This is simply an embodiment of picking up one's cross and dying to self. There's no question in my mind that God calls all of his people to walk through their own Jerusalem. And in fact, many Jerusalems during our life. It is something about being in that place of suffering for reasons that we cannot tell and even feeling a degree of injustice and languishing under God's seeming severity at times that we begin to understand or learn new things about the cross and what Jesus endured. We see new aspects of our old self put to death and we see aspects of our new self come alive. And so what is your Jerusalem? And perhaps the even more important question, knowing what your Jerusalem is, are you headed toward it or away from it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for your faithful willingness to go to the cross, to take the form of a servant, to suffer injustice, to suffer for doing good, that we might benefit. We give you thanks for Paul and his service to you for his willingness to go to Jerusalem, even though he knew that suffering awaited because he believed in the good that you would work through it. Would you give us strength and confidence and faith 
As you call us into our Jerusalems, would you help us to move toward them rather than away from them? And would you help us to have the faith and the boldness uh, to move through them well? Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of of crying out and asking, where are you? Uh, Would you help us to still cling tightly to the resurrected Christ, our one hope in life and death? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.